Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nurtured Foundations online course. The Nurtured Foundations course is a podcast style course to teach parents how to start solids with their baby. Are you a parent with a child from zero to 24 months? Well, then this online course is for you. This is a comprehensive course that empowers parents to start solid foods in a confident and safe way and raise adventurous and healthy eaters from the start. We cover topics such as when to start solids, the most nutrient-dense foods to feed your babies, recipes, troubleshooting, how to prevent picky eating, and so much more. If you want information on this course, go to nourishthelittles.com and click on the link, Nurtured Foundations Online Course. You can also find a link to the Nurtured Foundations Online Course on my Instagram bio. Click on the link and look for Nurtured Foundations Online Course. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. This is Christine from Nourish the Littles, and I'm joined by my co-host, Corey, from For Nutrient Sake. And we're so glad that you guys are here listening today. And for today, we wanted to interview a very special guest. So instead of talking about food or farming or health, which is what we normally talk about, um, we wanted to discuss education and specifically reading. And we wanted to talk about fostering a love of reading and teaching through reading. And all of this is a really big priority in both Corey and I's homes. And so this is why we wanted to bring on an expert in this subject. And so today we're going to interview Sarah McKenzie. Do you want to say anything real quick before I jump in? <laughs> Me? Yeah, sure. I do. I'm so hi. happy to be here. And I was just thinking, Corey and Christine, that um, as you're talking about how you normally talk about food and like nourishing that's kind of what we're talking about. Today. We're like talking about like food for the mind, right? And just for the soul. I love it. It's the same kind of idea, just a little bit different. Nourishment of a different sort, I suppose. <laughs> oh, I mean, nourishment, I think, encompasses the whole body. And so yeah. the mind and the emotions are definitely part of that. Yeah. But so we want to interview or interview. Wow. We want to introduce Sarah <laughs> um, before we start. Uh, so Sarah McKenzie is the author of Teaching from Rest and the Read Aloud Family and several new picture books. She's the host of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. It's a great podcast, especially for homeschoolers, which has been downloaded for uh, over 13 million times in more than 160 countries and is the publisher at the brand new boutique publishing house, Waxwing. Her best work, though, is at home in the Northwest, where she and her husband of 20 years homeschool their six children. So welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas again. <laughs> Thank you. I kind of feel like I need a nap after that introduction. 
wait a second. <laughs> no, it's, it's a very, it's very impressive for sure. I think the uh, homeschooling six kids takes the cake though. <laughs> well, three of them are graduated now, so that's exciting. And it's a little interesting because now that they've all been homeschooled since the beginning, but since the three oldest are graduated, we're still at home with an 11 and twin tens. Um, we're much more chill about it than we were the first time because we have like, I know all the balls that I dropped with the older kids and yet they're still really thriving as young adults. And so I think it gives me like a different kind of, there's a reason why like experienced moms or like older moms are so much more relaxed, you know? And I think it's because they know actually it's all going to be okay. You know, like there's just like a different kind of perspective that's so helpful. So um, yeah, I wish I had known that at the beginning. Because <laughs> it was a little bit high, more high strung back then. <laughs> okay, so just for for your own reference, yeah. um, <laughs> I was homeschooled K K through twelve. Um, my children have been homeschooled. Um, my oldest has been homeschooled since uh, second grade. My second oldest has been homeschooled since um, first grade, and then okay. I have two younger ones. Um, my third is now in kindergarten, and my I have a three-year-old. And then Christine, this is her, she was homeschooled for a stint in like what, middle school? And then um, this is her first year homeschooling her kids. And she has a third grader, fourth grader? Fourth grader and first grader. Okay. And then a three-year-old to keep things interesting. Of course. You got to have that. You got (laughs) to toss in that three-year-old. They always keep things interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... As you know, just so you have that reference point, um, I think it's fascinating because I think you're 100% right that seasoned moms, especially seasoned homeschooled moms, homeschooler moms, just have this almost, it's not, blasé is kind of maybe not the right word, but it's, but it's almost like a, a, a piece about him, you know, where they just have this it's all right. Like it'll, it'll come out in the wash. And, um, (laughs) I, I don't know. I'm, I, I want to be around those sorts of women more. Like I need more of them (laughs) as my, so that you can like absorb some of that, right? Yeah. Pass that on (laughs) to me. (laughs) Yeah. So as soon as we, okay. So as soon as we figured out that we were going to interview you, I started just binging on your podcast episodes and um, really enjoyed them. Actually, probably one of my favorite ones so far was the 25 cent notebook. uh, Oh, yeah. 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 And I 100 percent I am applying that in my own, you know, daily homeschooling life. But I talked to tons of my homeschooling friends and they all said the same thing, which was less is more, less is more, less is more. I wish I had done less is more. And I have actually been embracing the less is more and I am starting out very, very minimal with like, I'm not even doing history. I'm not even doing science. I'm literally just doing reading, writing, and math. Yep. There's a little spelling trickled in there, uh, but mostly I'm just focusing on those three until I feel like I can get my feet solidly on the ground. Um, but it's been a complete joy so far. And I'm only four weeks in, but I'm obsessed and loving it. And my kids are so happy too. I love hearing that. You know, it's so interesting because I think I do less now, even with that perspective. Like, I think I I knew I should do less because the same thing I would hear from these seasoned homeschooling moms, do less, do less. I, ne- I was sort of obsessed for a while with asking 
seasoned homeschooling moms, what do you regret or do you wish you had spent more time on? They never said anything academic. They always said they wish they had done less there and that they had enjoyed it more, spent more time like throwing their school books to the wind for the day and going to the park and bringing a big bag of popcorn and books, read alouds or going miniature golfing in the middle of the day just because they could, you know, that kind of thing. And I would think that's so interesting. And now I can, I mean, I think we do less as far as like history and science and all those things. I mean, reading, writing, and math are still sort of where those are like the things we kind of do every day. And then they learn so much history and science during read aloud time, or if they if they just had their own quiet reading time during the day, which we might get into, I suppose. Um, the so many of the other like what we could consider content based subjects, I guess they get through reading, and it's not doesn't need to be like this systematic. Um, you know, moving it through, moving through a curriculum. I actually find with my older kids, a lot of what they remember from the content subjects are not from the co-op classes they took. They're not from the years that I actually did do story of the world or whatever, whatever curriculum I decided I was going to do that year. Uh, it's from their, their own reading. They're just whatever they happen to read. They read that detectives and toga series and they know all this stuff about Greek. So they read Rick Riordan's, you know, um, no, I can't remember the, the Percy Jackson books. They know all about these Greek gods and, you know, like that kind of thing. That is what they remember. And they, the things that they learned because they were interested in. So it's really interesting. I I think we do put a lot of pressure on ourselves to get it right, to make sure we don't miss anything. We like don't forget to dot any I's or cross any T's, but of course we're going to. So it's better probably to think through like, which ones do I really not want? Like I'm going to drop some balls because we all do, but maybe I could be really intentional about which ones we drop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of okay with dropping some of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's impossible not to. I mean, yeah. who? I was talking to somebody the other day, one of my friends. And no, we were it was, talking, was yeah, it you? It was, well, it was all of us. Like, oh, yeah. In, okay. In so we have this like side. group yeah. message between uh, four our girlfriends. And um, we were all talking about how you just literally cannot, you either have, you know, a nice or your house is clean or all your, all your your homemaking all of your meals or you're getting a shower every day or like or you you're know? super creative and have like tons of games for homeschooling yeah, but like right. you're not doing all of that like your no. house is not spotless and every single meal is not made from scratch and every single homeschooling game is made you know by hand or what yeah Whatever. yeah yeah like, <laughs> totally totally well the thing yeah. is I think we see other people who do one of those things so like you know I'll have a friend who's really good at making these gorgeous like I don't know birthday cakes or something that are based on like a theme my kids love or books that they loved or something and I'll think oh my gosh I don't do that and then there's somebody else who does like road schooling and they're taking their kids all over the country doing all kinds of stuff oh my gosh we never like I don't even want to take my kids to like the grocery store I definitely don't want to take them <laughs> On a road school I trip. agree with that 100%. <laughs> it's my least favorite activity with my kids. Yeah, true. It's so it's just a recipe for disaster. And then you see somebody, you know, who like is like making their own bread or growing their own grain or growing garden. And then you have somebody else who's doing like all these hands-on science experiments. And in our heads, I think what we do is we combine all of these women into like one fictional composite woman <laughs> and we hold ourselves against her and not realizing that not only can do we have to make those trade-offs, they can change every year. So just yeah. because you decide to do, you know, like that hands-on history program this year doesn't mean that you have to do that every single year. And next year, maybe you don't even do any history, but you end up growing your own garden. Like that's amazing. So over time, I think if we could like, it's so hard to do in the moment, but if we could like zoom ourselves out and see it more like a bigger picture, mm -hmm. um, we'd probably be more impressed with ourselves and all the things that we're doing with our kids. 
Yeah, that's a good point for sure. All right, Corey, do you want to start us on the question? Okay, yeah. So usually, and I know that we've already been talking for 10 minutes here, but usually we start with an icebreaker question and I actually like want to know what your answers are. Yeah. So we actually will answer, ask this one. Um, but I would love it if you would give us, and we'll all like round table this question. Um, what is What was your favorite book growing up, either as a child or a young, you know, middle-aged reader um, or even teenager? Okay. So yeah, two come to mind. Can I tell you two? Can I answer with two? Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, I want to cheat already. Okay. So the picture book that comes to mind, I remember being at library story time and the librarian reading King Bidgood's In the Bathtub. This is by Dawn and Audrey Wood. It's like this beautifully painted uh, middle medieval kind of picture book story about a king who will not get out of the bathtub and then all of like his courtiers and the queen and all the people the page and everything they can't get him out so they are all trying to they all try different strategies to get him out i thought this book was the best ever i obsessed <laughs> over it when i was a kid i read it with my kids and it freaked them out audrey my oldest who's now 22 she still says that book gave me so many nightmares mom as a kid so i mean i don't know it was, <laughs> i don't was- understand <laughs> It's so well, it's wonderful. Duck in the bathtub? No, he just refused. He refused. <laughs> so it's like, okay, so then the cook, the cook's like, get out, you know, because it's time for dinner. It's time for the feast. And he's like, come in, said the king with a blub, blub, blub or something like that. <laughs> and they bring the feast into the tub. And you have this huge, this picture of like this amazing feast in the tub. And then like the the general i can't remember his name like the the general comes in is like we have to go to battle and then he's like bring the battle to the tub and they bring, it's amazing it's amazing i do not know how i gave it a nightmare i kind of feel bad about it that's the picture book that i remember and still love and the novel i remember the first this is like the moment i thought i'm a reader i think i was in third grade i might have been in like second i don't know uh, we had a classroom library. The teacher said we had to pick something from the classroom library for SSR, for silent, sustained reading time, right? And because this is the kind of child I was, <laughs> I just walked around that library looking for the fattest book because I wanted the teacher to be so impressed with me. So I literally looked for the fattest book I could find, and I found Matilda by Roald Dahl. I was like, guess I'm reading that. And it was very satisfying when the teacher's like, ooh, you picked a big one, Sarah. I'm like, I know. Uh, it was the first time I read a book and thought, this is magic. Like, I didn't know. It was, felt like a portal. It felt like a different world. That was the moment I think I was like, oh, yeah, I'm. books are like my thing. <laughs> That's so interesting. Okay, let me just give a real quick story. So my um, kindergarten, she's, she's six. She, this summer watched we watched the netflix um matilda uh musical which is fabulous um but she just she looked at me because i told her there was a book called matilda that the that the musical is based on and she looked at me she goes well i can't read and i was like well that's okay i can teach you how to read and she goes i need you to teach me to read so i can read matilda and i was like okay I was like, well, here's a Bob book, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Actually, that's a really, like, I love that so much because it feels to me um, 
like exactly why we want to read really good books with our kids. Because if we they think that they're just reading Bob books because that's as good as it gets, it's very disheartening, you know. But if especially because all of my kids struggle to learn to read. So if they're struggling when they're learning to read and they have something like, oh, once I get to read, I can get Matilda for myself. I mean, that's that's next level. So that's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Is this the Matilda? Because I actually don't think I've ever read this book. Is this the Matilda where they made a movie out of it and it's the girl that um, has yes. like magical powers? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She has ha- to- totally terrible parents, like right. often happen right. in old doll books, but they're like funny, yeah. terrible. They're not like scary, terrible, or at least they were yeah. to me. Maybe that comes from me having good parents. That's probably true. So I thought they were funny, terrible. Um, and she was really smart. And then she also yes. had this magical pa- ability to move things with her yes. mind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. This is good to know. Yeah. I'm going to have yeah. to look this book up. <laughs> I think I only read, um, what is it? James and the, and the Peach with. Oh yeah. Giant, Roll, yeah. Giant Peach. How do you say his name? That author? Roald Dahl. And I Roald do, Dahl. I will say, I'm not, he's, he can get kind of slapstick. He can have like a lot of like burp and fart jokes kind of stuff like in his bfg that's another book my kids love they also have like some language in there that like i don't necessarily want my five-year-old repeating so if i'm reading aloud sometimes i just edit it on the fly (laughs) uh but i don't know i loved them as a kid so that's so interesting yeah okay christine what was your favorite book growing up um i couldn't remember a picture book uh but my favorite book, and even still now as adult, and maybe maybe it's not like my favorite now as adult, but as a young reader, let's say like teenager, young adult, uh, this is kind of weird, but it was Wuthering Heights. You read that? Oh, as a teenager. I thought you were saying as yeah. a like middle schooler. No, 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 no. No, as a teenager. I was obsessed with Wuthering Heights. Really? I don't why? know why. And actually, and at that time, I was also reading poetry from Edgar Allan Poe. Were um, you like broody and gothic-ish? No, not at all. Oh, I've never been a goth in my life. Like, that's what's so <laughs> weird about it. I'm probably as preppy as they can come, but there's something about, like, the the dark love story of Heathcliff and Catherine that just, like, I absolutely loved. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And yeah. And I love Jane Austen and all of those kinds of books. And, um, but yeah, that, that was mine. <laughs> okay. My turn. Right. Um, my favorite when I was like middle school age, or maybe it was early elementary or later elementary, um, was, um, Ella Enchanted. And then, um, high school and okay. Ella Enchanted the movie. Terrible. I hate that movie. Oh, really? I was just going to ask if you liked the movie. Brenda. No, I hated no, okay. the movie. Yeah, yeah, I love the book. I thought the movie took it way too um, cartoony, sort of. I know it was not a cartoon movie, but it was too cartoony to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and obviously, that's an interpretation, right? The way that I read the book was not displayed in the movie. Um, and then, obviously, um, Anne of Green Gables. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> I can't help it. I can't. Now, do you like the Anne of Green Gables movies? You know, like the Megan Pollock. Old ones. Yes. Old the ones, old right? Ones. The old, yeah. ones. old ones. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, the Megan yes. Follows ones from yes. Canada. A hundred percent. Yes. Oh. Actually, when I was in college, my family went to Prince Edward Island. <gasps> um, and my poor brother, because I was in college, my sister was in high school, and my brother was in elementary school. And at some point during the trip, he was like, um, 
can we like maybe go see some swords and guns and stuff? <laughs> um, <laughs> he uh-huh. was not uh-huh. into it, but it's okay. It wasn't for him. <laughs> Just give him some raspberry cordial. You'll yeah, be fine. No, he was like so not into it at all. Poor thing. Um, so anyway, Aww. and then God was like, hey, you know what's funny? I'm going to give you two redheads as children. Mm. And this will be, you'll see all the things about it. So I read, I read Anne of Green Gables to my children. This is the first read aloud that I read to my older two. Actually, yeah. maybe, actually, that's not true. I read them Harry Potter first. And then I read them Anne of Green Gables. Yeah. And my son thought it was hysterical because he's like told my daughter that it was like Anne is 100% like her she's like she's so dramatic and so over the top and that's just like you and she was offended by it she was like what are you talking about <laughs> if you're being told you're Anne shortly I think it's a compliment it's totally a compliment okay so um Sarah, I think what we got a little bit of your background background when um, Christine read the bio, but and we got a little bit of why you love books through Matilda. But <laughs> is there anything else that would, you know, aid in telling your story that you want to add to that? Yeah. So I got really passionate about reading aloud when my oldest three kids were maybe eight, six, and four, we were already reading aloud some, you know, like you'd read bedtime stories to your kids. And I loved reading with them. I also felt very intimidated. Like I would go into the library and I would see all these children's books. And I knew some of them were really delightful, like King Bidgood, <laughs> um, if you ask me anyway. Uh, some of them were horrible. Like the kind where I was like, I would like try and hide them behind my couch. Like, I just don't know what happened to that book, honey. I can't read it to you. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. If you asked me to read that book again. And I couldn't really figure out why that was. Anyway, fast forward then I'm homeschooling. Uh, we just started homeschooling not too long before this. And I heard a talk by Andrew Putua from at the Institute for Excellence in Writing. He was talking about nurturing competent communicators. And in that talk, he said, uh, the two most important things you can do to help your kids become good communicators was recite poetry and read aloud a ton. And he's very compelling speaker. He's one of those people you hear and you're like, okay, yes, I'm going to do this. So I started reading aloud a lot. Um, and we, I mean, just way more than we had been before. And one of the things I noticed, all those things he had promised did happen, like the increased vocabulary and all these academic things he had mentioned happened. But what really surprised me, pleasantly surprised me, was all this connection that happened in our family, like inside jokes between the kids, how much like it bonded us together, how even on like really stressful days, reading aloud was something we would all enjoy that took relatively low energy, especially if we ended up going the audiobook route. And I read a book, um, and I'm sure some of your listeners have read this. It's called The Read Aloud Handbook by Jim Trelease. And in that book, he says, if we could bottle up all of the benefits of reading aloud and like put it in a pill, like people would spend an enormous amount of money. Like there's so many benefits, academic, social, emotional. It's just unbelievable what a read aloud can do. It's free. It doesn't take us anything. We can go to the library, just pick a book off your shelf and read. It's just astonishing how much the language coming in through the ear does for us and for our relationships. And there's just nowhere else we can get that. And so I, a few years later, uh, gosh, several years later, I guess, maybe five or six years later, 
started the Read Aloud Revival podcast. And I really thought it was just going to be a couple of episodes where I was sharing just how much our family was loving reading aloud. And um, instead, it just sort of became <laughs> like, like I, I think a lot of listeners had the same experience I did, which is they started reading aloud a lot and then realized, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I want more of this and I want to share it. And I'm so excited and get kind of zealous about it. And so, um, so then there came a book and that commu whole community. And now it's like, you know, the thing I love talking about most of all, but in our homeschool, it has remained the tippy top priority. The thing that like, you know, we all have those days where uh, we're not getting almost anything done. The one thing that definitely will, will happen is reading independent reading time. Um, Reading aloud happens most, not every, but most days. Um, and it's just the thing that I've seen. And now, especially with my older kids having graduated, and I asked them not too long ago. Okay, each of you, I texted them all. They're all at college, right? I'm like, tell me your, just off the top, top of your mind, like what's one gut memory that you have of like homeschooling that you remember? And they each named a book. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's just so interesting. Out of all that time, that's what they remember. So. So I was homeschooled for a stint as well, uh, fifth grade through freshman year. And one of the things that my mom was really good at, and I don't even think she, you know, I don't, I don't think she knew the importance of reading aloud. It was just something that we did as a family that was her way to connect with us, exactly like you mentioned. But she would read aloud uh, books to us. And I remember being a 15, 16, 17-year-old, and my mom was still reading aloud to me, uh, <laughs> at night. And it's, it is one of my core memories as a child and it's, I absolutely love it. Um, so yeah, I, I can, I completely agree with that. Yeah. I have, I have those core memories too, because my mom was very intentional about reading to us at nighttime specifically and a lot during the day as well, because um, we were, all, I think we we're all struggling readers. And so we didn't come to reading on our own until later. Um, and so she would just read to us all the time. And I have these very specific memories of like me or my sister going, mom, mom, you got to wake up and finish the chapter. Mom, can you finish reading? Because <laughs> she would just do this like, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> yes. I remember reading aloud to my kids when my twins were born. So when we had our twins, we had a 12, 10, 8, and 1-year-old. Oh, my gosh. Twins. Yeah. And I would sit and I would try to read aloud. We didn't read much that year, I'll be honest. But I would try to read aloud. And my oldest daughter would be like, don't sit in the, in the green chair because the green chair was like the soft. You know, I would 100% <laughs> fall asleep in that thing. So she'd be like, don't sit down. I'd have to like stand up to read because I'm like, really tired. <laughs> Can I get your steps in while you're reading? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, this kind of reminds me, there's a book called The Reading Promise, My Father and the Books We Shared by Alice Ozma. It's a memoir. Um, it's not for kids. It's, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I, it's been a while since I've read it. So I wouldn't, I would say it's not for kids. It's, um, it's a book for adults. But basically when Alice was, I think it was fourth grade or so, uh, she and her father decided to see if they could read aloud a hundred nights in a row. And they just never stopped doing it until she turned 18. And it, oh, wow. she has these stories in there of like coming home after like high school football games and having to be like, they needed to get their reading in before midnight so they wouldn't break their streak. So like she would come over with her friends and be like, you guys got to sit and wait a second because my dad's got to read to me. Isn't that gorgeous? Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> I just got chills. That's the sweetest thing ever. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What you said, Alice Ozma? Ozma. And the book is called The Reading Promise. 
And I loved it. And I did interview her for the Read Aloud Revival too at one point a few years back. So there is an episode where she comes down and talks to me about that experience of of being raised. Basically, it became like a really core part of their identity as their their relationship, their father-daughter relationship, right? Because it was the thing that's so special. Oh my gosh. So my husband in the past like month since we started homeschooling, uh we started reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then we did uh, The Horse and the Boy, and now we're going backwards to The Magician's Nephew, and then we'll do Prince Caspian. But somehow, I think, I don't even know how, I started putting down the three-year-old, and he was the one staying up with the other two, reading to them. And it's just been this thing that he's done with them, and he gets really into the books and has like character voices for all of them. And you can tell that it's something that he enjoys as well. And the kids look forward to, and I, I am just giddy because I can see that relationship forming. I can see the, yeah, kind of like the magic that's happening, uh, between the two, between the three of them as he's going through these books and reading them aloud to my kids. So, yeah, that's so fun. Oh, and it, it's kind of fun too that it happened out of necessity, you know, like so often I think that happens where I'll, I just had this conversation with my 20 year old who's at the one at Savannah college of art and design. She was saying, um, this is kind of a tangent, but I promise I'll bring it back. Uh, She was saying that she is surprised at how much more able she is to like organize and manage her workload than a lot of her peers are. And that just came as a surprise to her because we never like worked on that. I would not call that like her strength or anything. And um, and it occurred to me that the reason that she has any ability to do that is really because I didn't have the ability to manage her workload. Because like I said, when she was 10, we had a 12, eight, one and baby twins, right? And it was like several years before we had a good homeschool routine again. And so I thought, oh, well, the reason that so it was a lack of my, my, what I perceived at the time of a lack of ability. Like I can't give this to you. So my poor child, I, I hope she's not damaged forever because of the things I couldn't give her during these years of homeschooling. And in hindsight, I'm like, oh, those ended up being gifts in ways that we didn't, can't, can't really imagine. So I'm just thinking of you putting your three-year-old to bed and being like, oh, I can't be in there to read with them. But actually what that did is it's like what that made it possible is this beautiful connection between your husband and the kids on their own. I love that so much. It's a reminder that we don't have to do and be all the things for our kids, you know? Yeah. I love that. That's actually, I mean, that's one of the cores of homeschooling that you have to kind of like what we were saying earlier is that you have to be able to drop things and maybe dropping things is not dropping, you know, something that's, it's, it's maybe not necessary, or maybe it gives the your kids the ability to figure it out on their own or yeah, that's Mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to say something, Christine? Sorry. Oh no, I was, I was going to move on if that was okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So Sarah, one of the things that we focus on, on modern ancestral mamas is finding ways to apply ancestral wisdom to modern motherhood. And so for that reason, we were hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit about how can we use the ancient tradition of storytelling to help raise our kids in today's modern world. Yeah, I love this, Um, especially because it's a very modern way to think um, this sort of, okay, let me back up just a little bit. When it comes to storytelling, 
when it comes to ancient tradition, stories were always how teaching happened. Like that's always how things were, like information was passed on. It's a very modern thing for us to prioritize like nonfiction texts, right? Like we have like a very like priority in our modern world that like a, a nonfiction text, an informational text is more valuable for some reason than a story. But this is a very new thing. This has never been how humans have interacted with ideas or stories or even facts over time. They were always telling stories to convey facts, telling stories to convey information of where we began and why we're here and what we're for. Stories have always been how humans understand the world. And also, we know this implicitly because if you if you're listening to the news or you're listening to a speaker or you're listening to like a pastor in a church setting, a lot of times afterward, we might go like, I can't remember a lot of what was said, but you can remember the story. You can remember the story that they told. And there's a reason for that. It's because our brains were wired for story. There's this fascinating book by um, Lisa Cron for writers, and it's called Wired for Story. And it's talking about, it's basically a writer's handbook, a writer's guide for using brain science. Like she, she pulls in all of this brain science about how the human brain is wired for story to help writers tell better stories and like hook their readers. But when I was reading this book, I was so fascinated by how our stories, I mean, our brains are actually, we are really geared toward understanding everything in the world through story. This is why metaphors are really helpful or like um, examples are really helpful. So we can, I'm, I'm trying to give a good example of what I mean here, but if we were just to say, that um, I don't have an example queued up like I should have. Let me think. Well, I'm having a hard time thinking of one. So let me just kind of. Okay. So I have one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, there's this concept that I'm trying to get my kids to understand that there's a difference between trying not to do something and actively trying not to do something. Okay. And the, it finally, I've been saying this for a couple of years to them and it finally dawned on me a couple of days ago that, and I told my son a story to convey this message. And the story was, <laughs> I'm driving down the road, right? A two lane, a two way road. And I take my hands off the wheel and my car swerves and slams into somebody else. And there's an accident. And I said, but I wasn't trying to cause an accident. But if I keep my hands on the wheels, that's me actively trying not to cause an accident and there's a big difference in those two things and like this is I'm telling you this is something I've been saying to them for years and it finally you know clicked yeah because we can see it like I came on I mean even like as a 42 year old woman you say that at first you said uh you know the difference between trying not to do something and actively trying not to do something and I'm like okay and my brain is trying to be like okay what does she mean by that exactly then you paint a picture and I'm like oh I totally know what you mean and that's exactly what our brains do that's why we use stories I mean um if we want to go into the Christian tradition we can Jesus never actually gave any instruction that was not through a story. It was parable Mm -hmm. after parable after parable, story after story after story. Why? Well, because we understand things better in stories. And so there is this, um, well, I always thought it was a quote by Andrew Peterson, who's an author and a, and a musician, but he credits it with someone to someone else that he doesn't know where he heard it. So we'll just say it's, you know, some great idea out there, but the quote is, if you want your children to know the truth, tell them the truth. If you want your children to love the truth, tell them a story. I think 
that's it. It's like, it gives us like, it gives a body, it gives a shape. It gives us something to love. There's a difference between reading, you know, telling your kids that uh, about like sacrifice or reading the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and watching Aslan's sacrifice. Oh, now we know what we mean by the word sacrifice. It just gives it a whole nother layer of meaning. Yeah. Um, okay. So from that, can we, can you touch on like how using books can give us a better either opportunity to talk to our kids about this or give our kids better understanding on how to handle challenging topics like racism or bullying or religious differences or, you know, hard history or any of those sorts of things? Yeah. So one of the things that's really been interesting to me, the more I've learned about story is that really most stories are fundamentally the same thing. You have a character who has, who wants or needs something and there are obstacles in the way and for they have to overcome to get it. That's really like the fundamental, like if we like were to strip down every story right down to its brass tacks, that's basically what the story is. And we got a character who wants or needs something and has to overcome obstacles to get it. Well, one of the reasons this is so powerful is that when every time we read another story with our kids, we're giving them the chance to walk in another person's shoes because you read um, a story that's set in ancient China and you're finding out what you're, you're learning about and seeing the world from someone else's point of view that you have almost no reference for. And then we can take a book and put it in World War II London during the London Blitz and and find out what it felt like to be one of those kids that had to evacuate to the countryside. And then we can take a book that was during the depression, like Bud Not Buddy, maybe in um, depression era, Flint, Michigan, what it would have been like to be a black boy during that time. And, and look and trying to figure out who his father was and where he belonged in the world. Every single time we read a story, regardless of what kind of story it is, it's going to help us. They say there's a, there's a, an idea out there that I think Rudine Sims Bishop came up with this idea originally, and she said that books are windows, mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. So they're mirrors because we can always see something of ourselves in the characters. They're also windows because they help us see another point of view or another way of looking at the world that we haven't experienced. Somebody with completely different socioeconomic status, who live in a different place, who have different experiences, different um hardships than we've ever experienced. And so we're walking around those shoes. So if we think about it, you know, we don't, it's really hard as parents for us to be able to give our kids the experience, like to know what they're going to need in their adult life. Like we're trying, right? Like, so we try as hard as we can to prepare them, but really what better can we do than to help them walk in the shoes over and over and over of all of these different characters. And then they've got all this experience. So we find out that like from from a um, just brain science and just a empirical point of view, people who read fiction tend to be more compassionate and empathetic than others do. We have some studies that show this now. That makes so much sense. So if we're reading all these stories, reading all this fiction, these are made up stories, right? This is not the nonfiction stuff that we so like in our modern era. These are stories that are completely made up. We are giving our kids miles and miles and miles in the shoes of another. So there, that's one piece. So then we can discuss those challenging topics that come up. You, re, you read Bud Not Buddy, and I promise that classism and racism and social justice, those are all coming up in that 
story because there's no way they can't. Like you're going to read that book. Mm-hmm. Reading something like Little House on the Prairie, a lot of that's going to come up. So we're giving our kids the opportunity not just to walk in the shoes of another, but we're also opening up the door to have conversations that are hard or uncomfortable that we really want to have with our kids, but maybe don't know how. It kind of gives us like a frame for that. That's really cool. That I I hadn't thought about that, but all of the times as a young younger or um, kind of like preteen child that I was reading the, do you guys remember the books about like Dear America? Oh yeah. The letters. Those. They're like, those. Yeah, yeah. The letter. I, okay. They're like journals. Right? Yes. 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 Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Obsessed with those was obsessed with any books about um, the Holocaust. Just like I was fascinated with all of those topics and mostly reading about these characters within that time frame and learning about that. That's I, I was too that. about that, like World War Two era. Yeah, I was fascinated by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're and you're right. When you're reading it, you are you envision yourself in their shoes. Yeah, so, so which is interesting because not only then does it help grow your empathy and compassion like for others and be able to see things from a different point of view, like look at a topic from a different point of view that you've never considered maybe. Um, But it also, you're bearing witness over and over again to these heroes who are having to overcome obstacles. So you've got like, like we said, if every story is basically a hero who needs or wants something and has to overcome seemingly impossible odds to get them, then what we're doing is we're having our children bear witness over and over and over to these characters who have are overcoming obstacles. I just think that that's like, that's a kind of fortitude that we're building up in them at a very visceral level. Again, because we go back to like what stories do and why, why the story of Aslan in Lion, Witch, the War, Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe is so much more powerful than just telling kids what a sacrifice is like from a very, you know, didactic point of view. Um, we're giving the, our kids that embodied experience over and over and over again through stories, which is an ancient tradition. This is how humans have been passing ideas and sharing truth for as long as we have documentation. So when you're choosing books for your kids, are you choosing only classics? I feel like this ties into that yeah. discussion. No, I definitely do not only choose um, classics. Now, I do tend to want to read classics with my kids. So what I have found, um, a lot of times classics present a couple of issues with us. One is that if we're not in the habit of reading aloud, then like picking up and reading a classic is not exactly the most inviting or easy way to go about doing it. It's not like a tiny step into like developing habits of reading aloud, right? Getting your kids to love books. A lot of times they have harder language to understand. Um, Oftentimes when it comes to classics, either I'll read them aloud or we'll do an audio book. So for example, Mark Twain's books, I love my high schoolers to read those, Um, you know, Huckleberry Finn and, and Tom Sawyer. But I don't, they're hard to read aloud. There's like a whole bunch of dialect in there. It's just, it's very difficult to do. So we'll listen to those on, um, audiobook. But actually, um, I think it's really helpful for us. Well, let's do an experiment here. We already talked a little bit about like the books that you loved as kids. But if you were just to say right now, like off the cuff, what a book that formed you as a child was, like something that stuck with you, what would you say? Um, like one that I, I guess any, yeah. anybody read it? Um, mm-hmm. 
Hmm. We read a lot of Little House when I was a kid. Okay. My mom read us a lot of Little House, and I remember playing, like, in the woods. Yeah. We had these, you know, bonnets and stuff. Yeah. Um, And probably, actually, so Little House and the American Girl books. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Yes. Those are really well written, actually, for being, like, commercial fiction, honestly. Like, they were basically made for the to sell the dolls. They're fabulously well written. Yeah. Yeah, the older ones are. The newer ones are not great. Agreed. But the older ones are really good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And we lived close enough. I grew up close enough to Williamsburg that um, going to like Williamsburg and doing the whole Felicity thing was a big thing in our family. Okay. Um, So I'm going to say those those two series. Yeah. Okay. And then Christine, what about you? What do you mean by formed you? Like... Like that you would say like, okay, if I was going to name a book that like shaped part of who I was and you might say Wuthering Heights because you had already mentioned that before. That might be it for you. Yeah. I might say Wuthering Heights. Another book uh, that actually I have a lot of memories of is Watership Down. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that book. I've not read that in ages, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. That yeah, I remember that one being really intense and thinking a lot about that book and that story. There's a new, really gorgeous looking um, graphic novel illustrated by Joe Setfin of Watership Down that I'm I'm gonna be at a conference next week that he's at, so I'm gonna I've been waiting to buy because I want to get him to sign it, <laughs> so I don't want to just go to my local bookstore and get it. Um, but it looks really beautiful, and I thought, ooh, I'm gonna re- I haven't read I've been wanting to reread Watership Down for a while, and I haven't. So when I saw that graphic novel, I was like, oh, I'm gonna read it. That's how I'm gonna reread it. Okay, so my the reason I asked is I'm kind of curious: were either of those books assigned to you, or were they books that you were like a part of school or no? Uh, I definitely read the American girls on my own. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Watership down was read to me. It was one of the books that my mom read to me. Okay. And I don't remember why I read Wuthering Heights. Um, yeah, I don't remember why I would have read that. Yeah. What I found is it feels like when I ask that question, um, most often people will name books that weren't assigned to them for school. And I think we some sometimes, and especially as like parent homeschooling parents or like English teachers will do the same thing. We sort of think the books that we assign to our kids or that we require them to read will have the more lasting impact. That's why we chose it and we're going to make them read it. But actually what I've been finding in this question over and over again is a lot of times the books that make the biggest impact that have the longest lasting effect are the books that we picked up ourselves. So the books that like our kids chose to read or that we chose to read um, that we read for fun. They were the books we stayed up late reading with a flashlight under the covers, which never happened to me with a book that was assigned to me at school. I never like finished it and was like, oh, I can't now that I finished my five paragraph essay. I cannot wait to like <laughs> reread that book, right? Like that's not what happened. Um, I think that same expectation of like thinking that because it's on the curriculum, it's on the expect on the required list, I guess, mm-hmm. that it means more than a book that a kid just picks up for free to read for fun. That same idea can kind of cross over to classics where Classics are classics because they've stood the test of time, because more than one generation basically has said this was a book worth returning to, which is really wonderful. But there are also, I think, so many books coming out now that are really well written and really well done. And I know that as a writer, when I was growing up, 
if I had had that idea, there is sort of in some circles, there's sort of a, a preference. All like the books are always better that were older than are. No one could ever write anything now that would be as good. That's really disheartening for a young writer because you're like, oh, I guess I had to be born when C.S. Lewis did to be able to write something that good. Right. That doesn't make yeah. any sense. It's sort of like this skewed illogical time thing. Um, there's a name for it. Now I can't some kind of bias that I can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, Recent, uh, not recency bias. It's the opposite of that. Anyway, um, but I think there is something to be said for cultivating a love for reading that is just actually a love for the like the experience itself. Which means that um, as a kid, I read stacks and stacks and stacks of Babysitter's Club books. And like, there is no literary merit to these things at all. In fact, (laughs) I tried to give them to my oldest daughter, like, oh, this will be like, you know, nostalgic. She read half of one and was like, I, mom, I can't, my brain, I just can't, my brain can't handle this. Like, (laughs) I was like, I'm trying not to be insulted over here, but I read like a hundred of those. (laughs) And she's right. But also, um, there's something to helping our kids self-identify as readers. Like they see themselves as readers because they're reading a lot of books. So especially with kids who are um, in that stage between, like maybe they just learned how to read or they've, they're they just getting the hang of reading. But before they would, you know, before they're, before reading is really easy for them. And this mm-hmm. can last a long time. I mean, for most kids, it's probably between the ages of seven, eight, and like 15. <laughs> like it's a pretty long period of time. Oh, wow. Okay. The way that like you get to be a better reader who enjoys reading is because it becomes easy for you because mm-hmm. none of us like to do things that are really hard, right? So it becomes easier for you. And the way it becomes easier is if you read a large quantity of bo- words, like a large quantity of books. The more books you read, the easier it gets. Also- yeah. This is why those series are so great for like a 10 or 12 year old, those like Hardy Boys or something like series where they can just clock through all these books because they they are reading through all these books and they're like, look at that. I read that whole stack of books. I'm a reader. And then the qu- quantity of the words that they're reading makes them better at reading because that's how we get better and faster at reading is by reading more. So while yes, absolutely love the classics, read the classics with my kids, usually prefer to do it by a read aloud or an audio book. I think there is a tendency we have to think that if something is harder, it's better for us. <laughs> and I don't think that's always the case. I think there's a lot of really good things that happen when we read easy things as well. So speaking of, my daughter had a um, was reading a new graphic novel today and she finished it in two days and she was so proud of herself mm. she's like mom look I finished it to- in two days and this is my kid who it, it took her years really really far too long for my personal comfort to learn <laughs> to read yes um, <laughs> and um but like she she's read it and and she was so proud of herself and I know that you've talked about graphic novels and then you just mentioned this watership down one would you talk about them for just a second I know we're running out of time but oh we're good so Dr. Michael Gurian came on read aloud revival um he's written a couple books on brain science or like how brains work especially in kids growing up especially boys and girls like the like the differences in their brain wearing and in his book on boys he talked specifically about um how for a lot of kids, and he was talking about boys because he says he thinks it happens a little more often with boys, but this is true for actually across the board. For a lot of kids, they actually process information 
better visually than they do with language for quite a long time. And so graphic novels can actually, there's a couple of things happening here that we don't, when we see a graphic novel, we think like, we, we kind of go back to our childhood and think of like Garfield or Calvin and Hobbes, right? Those are actually really good too. Archie. Love, yeah. love Calvin and Hobbes, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to say anything that I promise. Do not worry. No, I'm not about to say them. I still read Calvin and Hobbes as a 37-year-old woman, okay? <laughs> okay, so here's the great thing about Calvin and Hobbes or Garfield or any of these graphic novels is that when you're reading something that's just text, what they can see is that that lights up one part of the brain. And when you're looking at stories that are visual, just like a visual, like if you were to take, let's say, a comic book and take out all the words and just looking at the illustrations, it lights up another part of the brain. When you combine them and you have someone reading a Calvin and Hobbes comic or a graphic novel, both parts of the brain light up. They call it multimodal reading because it lights up multiple parts and you actually have to be using different parts of your brain to make sense of this story. And these graphic novels and these, you know, things like Calvin and Hobbes and Garfield and all of the rest, they, you don't understand them unless you're using, you're using the information about visually what's happening and text. So there's actually, even though it's, it's again, it, we have this bias, I think, toward if something is hard, it should be better for us. But actually, so then graphic novels or comics feel way too delightful, too easy to be good for us when actually <laughs> there's so much happening that we can't see. Um, and I love that too, um, Corey, about how your daughter was like, I finished it in two days because it's like that almost like a vote for herself. Like, oh, look at me. Mm -hmm. I'm a reader. I love it. Yeah, it absolutely was. Especially, you know, because it just took her such a long time to be able to get to that point. Yeah. And I think last year, she, it took her almost a full year. No, it wasn't last year. I don't know. It was either last year or the year before. She was, she was reading the first Harry Potter book, but she was listening to the audio at a, at a, slowed down pace mm -hmm. while reading along because I was like I this is this is the only tool I have left in my box yeah like this isn't this if this one. doesn't get you there I don't know what we're gonna do <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it worked but mm -hmm. it took her almost a year mm -hmm. to get through it because mm -hmm. she could do like maybe a page a day for a long time um so to finally be able to say look mom I read this book in two days wow. was like a, it's a big deal. Yep. Um, so, all right. Could, well, could we expand on that maybe and talk about struggling readers a little bit? Yeah. Is that, is that okay? I don't, I also, I don't know how much time you have. So. I'm good. I'm good on time. So I'm, I was just going to my notes is what I was doing there. Okay. <laughs> I was like, yes, I made notes somewhere here, didn't I? Um, yeah, I'm good on time for like another 15, 20. So, um, well, yeah. okay. Both Corey and I want, want to just preface by saying, each of us has had a child that I would say has struggled with reading. And I don't know how familiar you are with Waldorf, mm -hmm. but yeah. the Waldorf curriculum does not teach kids how to read until they're eight or nine. Yeah. And this is so foreign to many people, especially here in the U.S. Yeah. And so because of that, I had one child that came from Waldorf and then went into Montessori and he sort of was just like bumbling around kind of thing and was never really formally taught how to read. And so now I have a nine-year-old um, who thankfully is, you know, I think we're, we're finally over that hump. Um, you know, he learned how to read. But for the longest time, there's always been, I think there's this stigma behind kids that learn how to read later, especially when you have a husband and a father who learned how to read at the age of four. 
So it's like, <laughs> what, what advice do you have for parents of struggling readers? Yeah, so out of my six children, pretty much all of them were later than I wanted them to be. I think you said earlier, to, just a few seconds ago, Corey, you said, you know, she was took her far too long for my comfort level. That's such a good yeah. way to put it because actually there's not really, it doesn't ever take our kids too long to do anything. That's just the way they were wired, but it definitely can take them too long for our comfort level. <laughs> That's like a very <laughs> honest way to put it. I love it so much. Um, so yes, my kids learned to read far later than my comfort level. And um, I have since learned that several of them are dyslexic, which is really interesting because I think what my understanding of dyslexia was wrong. I was thinking, because of the way I had learned about it when I was younger, I thought it was like a, a learning disorder or a learning disability, that it meant that your kids had a hard time reading, that there were like there was like a certain stigma that went along with it. And since then, I have learned that it's actually, you know, I can't remember what the percentage of um, of people who they expect are dyslexic, but a dyslexic brain just means that they process language differently. And they're always dyslexic. So it's not like you can't, it's not a problem to fix. You just have a different kind of brain. Your brain was, is wired to process language in a different way than we typically teach in schools, which makes it very difficult for dyslexic brains to learn to read because we teach almost all reading programs, not quite all of them, but most of them are geared for brains that are not dyslexic. Then you have this child with a brain that processes language differently and they're sort of set up to fail. But even aside from that, in our homeschool, um, I stressed a lot with my struggling readers because we want them, we know that reading is so imperative and it's so critical to their success. We also maybe want them to love reading and we know if it's really hard and if it's this difficult, they're not going to love it. We're like worried about that, right? So we know it's really important and we're worried about them not loving it. It's just like this multi-layered set of worries for us. I think one of the things to remember, um, and I will send you ladies some research that you can link up in the show notes because uh, I cannot remember the name of the researcher at the moment, but I will... I, I'll, I'll send you links so you can you can pass it along to your listeners um, because the normal range for kids to learn to read is much later than we think it is. It's something like, I'm going to get this number exactly, like the actual number wrong because I can't quite remember, but it's something like four to nine for a child to start learning to read. It's very standard for like kids not to be ready to learn to read until they're eight or nine. Now, also, if we were to compare an average kindergarten or first grade curriculum 50 years ago in our country alone to what they're expecting a kindergartner or first grader to do today, the differences are astonishing. And it's not like anything has really changed. Do you know what I mean? Like in the, as far as like what a child is capable of doing, it's just that we, we haven't moving. evolved that quickly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we're just moving that mile marker is what's actually happening. We're just like deciding that like, this is, this is what kids should do now because it would make us feel better about ourselves. If all of our eight-year-olds could read, <laughs> that's really what's happening. It would help us manage our own anxiety about it. Um, but it's actually very typical for kids not to be ready to learn to learn older. Like you mentioned, Christine, in the Waldorf communities, uh, in the Waldorf educational model, I should say, uh, they don't even start teaching kids to, lead to, to read till they start losing their teeth, I think. It's sort of like that physical, right? Yeah. Yep. Totally. Okay. Yeah. And there's a couple things that kids need to learn to read. Um, they need, do, do need like some, not all, um, but m- 
most of them probably need some phonics. Um, I say not all because there are some kids who just learn how to like they just know how to read when they're like four. I've met these children. Apparently, I was one of them. I never had one, so I always hoped that one of my six would be like one of these children, so I could just have the experience that I never got one. It's like those babies that just automatically sleep through the night. I always wanted one. Exactly. But I never got one. <laughs> Exactly. Never my reality, but one can dream. Um, <laughs> so they need some level of phonics. They need to be read aloud to because they need that language coming in through their ears so that they can hear the language as they're reading it so that they know what it sounds, the cadence and the pacing sound like. That's actually more important. In fact, Marie Ripple, who runs the All About Reading program, which is a great program, especially if you suspect dyslexia, in fact, um, she will say that reading aloud is far more important than any phonics instruction. If you had to pick one or the other on any given day, definitely go for the read aloud over the reading instruction. It's, it has a, it's much more impactful for long-term success. So you have those two things. You have phonics, you have reading aloud. The third thing is time. And you, that's the part that hangs us all up because we, you cannot rush it. You cannot change however your child was made, however their personality and their brain wiring and their, they're probably, you know, they all have their own strengths and challenges and they're probably faster at learning some things. That's why if you have two kids, they never learn how to walk at exactly the same time. One learns how to walk at 11 months and the other one doesn't walk till they're 18 months. And you're like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? Or potty training, Right. They're all different. They're all these different humans. And for some reason, with reading, we get really hung up on it. None of us are as hung up. Like, you're not worried that, like, when you go into a job interview, someone's going to go, like, how old were you when you learned to walk? Right? Like, you're a really good walker. So, like, I bet you learned to walk pretty early. Well, one of the things we know is that it doesn't matter when a child learns how to read whether they learn how to read at six or whether they learn how to read at 10, by the time they're 15, that's almost always evened out. The child who learned how to read at six is very rarely a better reader than the child who learned how to read at nine or 10. And that's that research I'll get you. So if you have a listener who's like, I want to read, I need that, especially for that like handsome person I live with who might need to be like calmed down a little bit about all this. <laughs> the research is really helpful there. So I can also that to you. Um, it's really helpful just to know that there's no, there's no benefit to teaching an early reader, except that they can read a little bit earlier, but it doesn't mean they're going to be a better reader. You can still do a lot of that reading aloud so they can still get all that good stuff or they can listen to audiobooks. So reading aloud in the meantime does that thing that we were talking about earlier, actually, which is it helps them, like you were saying, Cor, like want Matilda for themselves. It makes them like want to get stories from themselves, know that this is something that they can't wait to do because they know these stories are rich and wonderful. And then the other thing I think to keep in mind um, is whether your kids are struggling to read or and the flip side of that coin is there can be some challenges if we have listeners who have kids who read early and they're like, oh, no, you don't understand, Sarah. That is really tricky. Yes, I do know that. I've heard this, um, that it is really tricky with early and advanced readers because they end up reading outside of their like social and emotional development. Like they're kind of okay. read so fast that you can it's hard to keep them in books. And in that case, I think it's really helpful to remember that you're probably one of your tippy top most powerful parenting tools is conversation. Just talking with your kids about what they're reading, talking about the things they're finding in the books that they read, talking about what's coming up and the questions that are that they have because of the books they're reading. And maybe even just talking so that you can like decide what's appropriate, what's not for your kids. Um, for example, 
my twins are now 10 and they're not the same 10 that my older son, our older son, who's now 18. He was a different kind of 10 year old than my twins are. My twins are a lot more sensitive. They're like, um, let me put it this way. <laughs> like we went to uh, Yellowstone National Park a summer or two ago. And I had to like research our Airbnbs very carefully because there cannot be like any, what's it called? Taxidermy on that walls. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> this is everywhere, right? In Wyoming. Cause people put like a yeah. deer head on their wall. <laughs> my children will not walk in that door. Like my twins, they cannot handle. It's just not something they can handle. I've never had to do this before where I'm like scaring, looking, zooming up on pictures, like ask, sending a, the owner, is there any taxidermy in your house? <laughs> Like, what the heck? Would you mind taking it down? <laughs> he cannot handle the same. They cannot handle the same kind of books that my older son could at 10. So it's like knowing your kids and knowing, you know, yeah. where you can put up guardrails to help them, like, find books that are more suited to wherever they're at emotionally. I feel like I went in 14 different directions with that answer, but hopefully listeners will find something in there that resonates. Yeah, no. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm very, I feel very... um relieved and uh just at peace with the answer and it makes me honestly appreciate Waldorf a little bit more because one of the reasonings that Waldorf gave for teaching kids how to read later is exactly what you said that they're not developmentally appropriate to read what is around them at the age of four five and six so a four five and six year old should not be able to look at the newspaper and see what the newspaper is saying like it's not that's not good for them or mm. this is I hopefully you don't have to hit the explicit for this, Corey, but I'll never forget driving down the DFW highway and there's a massive billboard that says condoms to go. And as a kid, I've always saw that. And it wasn't until I was a teen that I was like, oh, I know what that is now. Like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and now I drive Actually, down that same highway with my <laughs> nine-year-old and I'm just like, please, God, don't ask don't me. Don't read that. it. Don't read it. Don't read it. Don't read it. <laughs> Actually, I remember like th- now that you said that, I remember when I learned to read was when that um um that what's that girl's name who was murdered um oh. that was like she was like a little girl and she did all those pageant stuff. It's like a really famous case. Come on, guys. She's I know she's a little she cute blonde, blonde girl. I can picture yeah. her. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading a headline in the grocery store because I went grocery shopping with my mom because we were homeschooled. And there was nowhere else for us to go. Um, and asking her about it. And she, I, she was probably like, oh, man, now you know how to read. And now we have to deal with this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's, it's true. Um, it's totally that's true. That's really interesting. I never thought of that. Like, there, there are words all around. And if you can read, you can read them. Yeah. Okay, I found I found um, the name of the researcher I meant I wanted to mention, Doctor Arnold. Just I think it's called Giselle. I think you pronounce it Giselle, but I could be wrong. G E S E L L. You might have heard of the Giselle or Giselle Institutes. They have like a series of books I love. That one that's like your one year old, your two year old. Then there's another one, your two year old, your three year old, and they do that all the way up till fourteen, I think. And I loved these books because they just tell you like what's developmentally appropriate at different ages. Mm. So I remember reading, and I can't remember which one it was. It might've been like seven or eight, you're seven or eight or something. 
I remember at the time, one of my kids was having a hard time lying. Like they were lying all the time. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is like a major moral failing on my part. Like I, why my child's going to grow up to be like a criminal, right? Like, like you do all the, I don't know, I go global. But I read in this book, I remember laying in bed and I'm reading about this developmental period. And in the book, it said at this age, you'll notice that your child starts lying more. That's because they're, and it described why. And it made me feel so calm because I realized like, oh, okay, that doesn't mean I should ignore it. There's still parenting to do, but it also doesn't, it's just normal. It's like part of, it's like if we didn't know that our kids were supposed to lose their teeth and they start losing their teeth, we're like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm doing the worst job, right? It's like, it's normal. That's supposed to happen. So they have to go through these periods of, so anyway, he, um, those books are fabulous. And his, there's a whole institute, I think it's run out of Yale University that, um, He's done some some research on uh, reading and learning to read late. And this is this is a note that I just found. I was like, I know I have notes on this somewhere. So this is the note. Um, Dr. Arnold Giselle found that all children go on the same path of development. However, some go faster, some go slower, and all have spurts and setbacks along the way. The obvious example is the age that children learn to walk. Some children learn to walk as early as nine months, some as late as 15 months. That range is normal, and we all agree that the early walker is not a better walker than the late walker. Mm -hmm. A similar example is the age that children learn to read. Some children learn to read at age three or four, others not until seven years or later. That range is all normal. The most compelling part of the research is that by the end of third grade, and I bet this is older for homeschoolers. I don't have like evidence for that, but that would be my hunch. Early readers have no advantage over later readers, and some later readers even go on to become the top in their class. Reading early is not an indicator of higher intelligence. Mm. Well, thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good quote. No. Not I'm me texting my husband that quote right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I really would love if, Sarah, if, you, if we could talk about quickly mm -hmm. um, how parents who are not homeschoolers, because we've talked a lot about homeschoolers, but how we have a lot of listeners who are not homeschoolers. How is this still applicable? Reading aloud to their kids um, or doing audiobooks or something, how is this still applicable for kids and parents who are not in this homeschooling thing? Yeah, I think in some cases it's even more powerful um, outside of homeschooling when it comes to, because if your kids are at school during the day, then when they're home, what you're looking for is probably some moments of connection, some way, you know, some of those moments of connection that you want to fit into a smaller period of time, which is great because reading aloud hits a lot of these beats. It meets a lot of these needs as far as connecting and also helping the kids academically because they're getting these grammatically correct, sophisticated language patterns in through their ear, which are going to help them be better readers, writers, thinkers, and idea connectors. And then at the same time, you're fostering this warm relationship between your child and books and between your child and yourself. So to do all of that in 10 minutes, you're like, oh, how can I find a tool that will help me do that in 10 minutes or 15 minutes or around the dinner table or on the way to school drop off in the morning? An audiobook can do that. A, a read aloud can do that. So it can be really, really helpful, especially when time. In fact, I would say um, whether you're homeschooling, public schooling, private schooling, anything, when you're at a season in life, when you feel like time is at a premium and you really feel like you're strapped for time to connect, reading aloud is 
probably going to be the fastest, most efficient way to get you there as well. Um, one thing that I like to remind people is um, I am convinced that bedtime stories were not invented by mothers. because. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but when the day is done and I'm tucking my kids in, I am like, I love you so much. And I do not want to see these sweet faces until tomorrow. <laughs> and I just, I'm done. I'm so done. And I'm yep. tired. So I have found that doing the reading aloud or the audiobook earlier in the day uh, is better for me. I don't read to my kids at bedtime. I do audiobooks at bedtime so that I can tuck them in, start their audiobook, and I can. Um, so I think just kind of questioning those thoughts if you're like, well, I want to read aloud, but I'm so tired at night. Well, that's not the only time you could read aloud and actually might not even be a great time for your family. Maybe at the breakfast, maybe 15 minutes of an audiobook at the breakfast table or on that morning commute. Or uh, I have a friend who they do read alouds at dinner. So basically, you know, every she was talking about how they like the dinner. They want, they do the dinner, family dinner thing, but sometimes they feel like um, you know, like you, you work so hard and then everyone's done eating in like eight minutes. And so then, uh, she kind of keeps them there with like dad reads aloud for like 15 minutes. Uh, and they all just kind of sit there and keep picking at their food or whatever. It kind of keeps everybody from running off too. So I think getting kind of creative about like, what would this look like in my family situation, regardless of whether you're, whether, where your kids are going to school, whether you're single parenting, whether you're in some kind of a crisis mode, like there are all kinds of, ways that you can make it work for you, but also understanding that it's just a powerful tool in your tool belt. I think that's helpful to think of reading aloud like a tool instead of another thing that you're going to fail at, instead of another thing to put on your to-do list, like another obligation. Instead, it's a really handy, powerful tool that can help you get to where you want to go faster and easier instead of just another thing that you should add to your to-do list. So this morning, my uh, six-year-old was having a bit of a meltdown over magnetiles I think and um she just was like totally a mess for a long time and I sat down or she she sort of like calmed herself down a little bit and then um kind of moseyed over to me and I was doing something on my computer and she goes hey um can you read this book to me and I sat down and I read it to her and it was just like a little picture book, you know, it was not anything big, but it was, it just changed her entire morning. Yeah. You know, she went from this total screaming on the, on the floor situation to, okay, I'm good. And then she sat there and, you know, she can't read yet, not fully. And so she sat there with her younger sister and said, Hey, um, you want to listen to me read this to you? And then she just made it up, you know, like okay. it wasn't at all the, yeah. the right story, but <laughs> Okay. So that reminds me that for years and years, that happens less now that our youngest ones are 10. So things have changed a bit. But when they were younger, the twins and Clara, they were all, they're um, 17 months apart. So there's like just a lot of toddlerness in our house. And they would, you know, they start to like just lose it. <laughs> like at any given time, <laughs> somebody loses it. And you know, like when that, that three-year-old like starts throwing a fit and you can't get them back like nothing you could say do you want chocolate ice cream and they're like no because they don't want anything <laughs> nothing no idea you have is a good idea um so what I found is that if I would say like do you, look, can I read to you the answer would be no because the answer to everything was no right but if I just grabbed a picture book off the shelf and sat down and started reading it aloud 
interesting things would happen. First of all, I couldn't even hear myself say the words. Like I'd be like, sit down and I'd act like I was reading it to myself and I would be, you know, just reading the words and I could barely hear them. And then like almost instantly, every time they'd stop and they'd like come over and then eventually just sit on my lap, quietly listen. So it got to be this thing where I would tell my husband, like, this is my best parenting tool. This is my best parenting hack. <laughs> and so he would say, I remember one particular time, both of the twins completely losing it so loud. And I'm like, watch. And he's like, there's no way. Like, this is not going to work. It totally worked. And I just, I'm like, somebody record this. This is like magic. <laughs> But I swear you couldn't say, like, I want to read to you right now, or do you want me to read to you right now? That would never work. You just have to do it. It's like an instant, like, it also works for moms who are about to lose it, by the way. <laughs> Not that that's ever me. <laughs> I'm going to remember that. That's a great idea. <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay. So you just sit down and you start, you actually start reading it like yeah. out loud. Like really just Even pick if- a picture book from the shelf and just sit uh-huh. down and start reading, like sit down and like crisscross applesauce on the floor, right? And then just start reading it out loud to yourself. You won't be able to hear yourself. And then like, just see what happens. Like seriously, try it and then tell me because I cannot wait to hear. Okay. So now I'm like looking forward to the next tantrum. Totally. And then let's, you have to send me a note because I want to, <laughs> I can't wait to hear. I know already what you're going to say. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Okay. I mean, I think what else do we need to cover? Sarah, do you have anything else you feel like you need to add for you know, people? The only thing is like nourishing kids through reading. Yeah. I think kind of that keeping that goal in mind, that's what we're trying to do here is nourish kids through reading, nourish ourselves through reading, nourish our family relationships. And um, it doesn't take long to do that, right? So a lot of times I'll kind of think of all the things that I feel like I should do every day with my kids. And it gets very overwhelming because I think, oh, I can't. I remember actually taking my kids to the dentist and at all six of them, the three ones are the three little ones I'm trying to juggle. The dentist has my, I don't know, he must have been eight or nine year old in the chair. And he's like, so does he floss every day? I was like, I mean, I don't know if that kid has clean underwear on. Like I have no... <laughs> idea. I don't, I don't know if he knows what floss is. Actually, I didn't say any of this. I was just like, wow. I mean, every day, is that another thing I'm supposed to be doing every day? So here's the thing with reading aloud. I think a lot of times both like, okay, I'm going to do this every day, but a couple of things. I remember doing the math on this at one point because I realized that even if I only read aloud for 10 minutes every other day, that's only about a half hour a week, right? That's not that much time that would add up to 30 hours over the course of a year. And in 30 hours, you could read aloud the entire Chronicles of Narnia series. You could read 200 picture books. You could read so much. So I think so often we think like, okay, I'm going to do this thing, whatever this good thing is that you're going to do. I'm going to do it every day, but it doesn't really need to be every day to count. It can be most days. It can be about half the days. It can be whenever you do it, you're a mom who does it, right? So instead of me thinking like, I'll go, I'm going to be a mom who reads aloud. So I'm going to make like a spreadsheet. I'm going to make like a chart. I'm going to put it on the couch. I'm going to put it on the fridge. I'm going to like- Stickers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm going to color code our schedule because I want to be- And instead, if I just grabbed a book and sat down and started reading, now I'm a mom who reads aloud. So I think kind of taking that pressure down and being like, remember the goal is to connect and to nourish and to reach our children's hearts. And that's- not doesn't take as much as we think it probably does. Have you heard of the book Three Million Words? I have not. 
looking. I'm looking on my shelf. Man, it's so close and so far away. I should have brought Building it over. Building a child's brain. Yes, it you is. Your gadget arm. I know. Um, so it's actually. I believe it was written by some speech and language pathologists, or it, it's a book that very commonly is assigned to speech and language pathologists. But it basically talks about the early child brain development and how many words they need to uh, develop properly and the okay. importance of having conversations. But it also talks about reading and it talks about the importance of reading to our kids. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I know. I'm. Can I just get up for a second? <laughs> but no, I'll write this down. I'll put this in show notes. But yeah, it's called Three Million Words, I believe. Yeah, um, I just found it. Oh, I cannot wait okay. to read this. <laughs> yeah, Thank it's you. it's really good. Highly recommend it. And I it just triggered that memory when you were talking about um yeah, the importance of just sitting down and reading aloud and and it doesn't it doesn't take longer than 10 minutes. Oh, this is this is what yeah, when you were adding up like if you just do it every other day kind of thing. Mhm. Yeah. So That's a that's so good cuz it takes so much pressure off. It's not, it's, and okay. So I do want to say that one thing, um, cause I have read both teaching from rest and, um, read aloud family and I, um, not to like, you know, teacher's pet here, but the, one of the things was like, that I got from both of them was this like almost permission, mm. you know? almost permission to do things that are really enjoyable with my kids in our homeschooling and in our, in our lives. And that it, those things that are enjoyable for me and enjoyable for them are, you know, like reading aloud and um, listening to audiobooks in the car and these, these sorts of things they're I now I have permission to make those choices to do those things and see them as beneficial and not just as fun, you know? Isn't it funny how we kind of tend to be suspicious or skeptical of the effects of things that we enjoy doing? Like, I think this is true in a lot of different ways too. Like I will notice, I'm trying to think, okay, I have a friend, Carrie, who really absolutely like loves physical movement so much more than I do. And like, I can kind of beat myself up over like how she like will jump out of bed in the morning if she gets to work out. And I'm the kind of person who will only jump out of bed in the morning if I get to read. <laughs> like if that's what I get to do, then I will definitely jump. But if you tell me I get to do yoga, I'm not jumping. That's not happening. Um, I'm not, I'm not super eager to get out of bed. And then I can beat myself up for it. Like, oh, I wish I was more like that. But actually doing that, like that comes that more naturally to her. Like she enjoys it more. That, that doesn't mean I don't need to physically move. That's not what I'm getting at. But what I'm getting at is like, because reading comes easily, like because the enjoyment of reading might come easily to me, I might not think it's as valuable. And in parenting, I think if something is kind of easy or enjoyable, I tend to suspect it. Like, I don't know if this is really as beneficial as something that's hard for me to do instead of sort of leaning into it. There's a book by um, Joy Clarkson called Aggressively Happy. And in there she talks about how we all have this inner tiny Puritan inside of us. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> if you're having too much fun, then this is not hard enough for you. You know, <laughs> this can't be that good for you because you're enjoying yourself. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So we talked about, we talked about this with food a lot where we're I mean, this is like one of my big things because when people talk about food, they you know, they want to 
our healthier food. They want it to be salads, right? Or like it's it's it has to not taste. It has to be kale, and it has to not have any oil on it, and it has to just be rabbit food. Yeah. And and I always just want to be like, no, but you can have tacos, and tacos are delicious, and tacos are really good for you. Yeah. So yeah, let's just eat the tacos. <laughs> But we're suspicious because if it's delicious, then that means there's, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's funny. That would be a great tagline. We're suspicious because it's delicious. (laughs) 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 We're suspicious because it's fun. Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) That's funny. that's great. Okay. Are we good? Do you have something else, Christine? Okay, go ahead. No, you're good. All right. Um, Sarah, I just want to thank you so much for joining us, for writing your books, for doing all the things for mothers and children and families that you've done. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me because this has been so much fun. This is a fabulous way to spend this rainy afternoon. So I'm so glad you invited me. <laughs> this is really Do you cool. want to tell, yeah. yeah. Do you want to tell people where they can find you? What, oh, would you tell us what um, uh, RAR Premium is? You know, yeah. all of those yeah, yeah. All of those things. Yeah, I'd love to. So the first place to go is probably the podcast. And so if you're listening to this, you're a podcast listener. So if you look for Read Aloud Revival, you'll find it in your podcast app. Um, new episodes go up every two weeks. And our online community for Read Aloud Revival is called RAR Premium. And it's an online resource, mostly for homeschoolers, although we do have some who have used traditional school who are in there. And what that is, it's a monthly family book club where we send you a family book club guide and do a family book club live activity um, on Zoom, where we usually interview the author or illustrator, or we do some kind of fun writing activity or um, a literary nature study where we pull a nature study into the book that weave it in with the book we read that month. Um, And that RER Premium is also homeschool coaching. So there's kind of two parts. There's the family book club part. It helps kids fall in love with books and helps homeschooling families really embrace literature in a joyous, joyful way. And then there's the coaching side where mostly I'm just um, helping moms like trust their own gut and be the experts of their own homeschool because I really believe that most of us already have everything we need to really love our homeschools and give our kids what they need. But we're like all looking for an expert to tell us how to do it. So, but really the experts usually <laughs> right inside ourselves. So that's sort of what we're doing there. And then, um, yeah, I guess readaloudrevival.com is the other place that you could go if you wanted to go like find, a, we have tons of book lists. We have a cool tool on there right now where you can say three things, how old your kids are. Um, I'm going to forget what they are, how old your kids are, whether you want a quick win or you're looking for a longer book. And then one other question about like a preference, like if you want a book that has magic in it, or if you want like a book that has some history in it or whatever, and then we'll give you a couple of custom book recommendations based on your answers. That takes like two minutes and you get some custom, like if you want to know, okay, I want, I want, I want to read aloud. I just don't know what to do next. That's the best place to go. So just go to readaloudrevival.com and you'll see that free tool there. Super fun. Do you want to share about Waxwing? Yeah. So Waxwing is our new publishing house because I have a tendency to keep starting things I don't know how to do, uh, whether that be like children or <laughs> like having children or starting businesses, apparently. So Waxwing is a publishing house. Really what we're doing is we're trying to make the kind of timeless um, read alouds that we love to recommend at Read Aloud Revival. That's really what we do is we're constantly looking for great books that appeal to a wide range of ages, um, that have fabulous illustrations and really good, delicious text to read aloud. Um, 
And so we're making those now at our publishing house. So we've released our first two books. We've got three more coming in 2024. We've got 2024. We've got three more coming in 2025. So we're like just working on making and um, delivering right now with their picture books. But next year we'll have a middle grade, uh, not historical fiction, fantasy, middle grade fantasy book, a novel coming out as well. So it's been very fun. Um, I love everything about books, but I had no idea how much fun they would be to make. It's really I was about fun. to say, are you writing these? I wrote a couple of the picture books. Um, in fact, two, the two that are out so far, I wrote two more that are coming out in 24. I wrote, but we've got several in the pipeline that I have not written. And I did not write the novel that's coming out next year. Millie Florence um, is an author, a very young, she's 20 years old. She was homeschooled and she is our first middle grade novelist. So we've got, uh, her book is called Beyond Mulberry Glen. And... Um, we're in the process we're we're I'm edit we're in our ed- like last editing phases right now it's so good you guys I cannot wait <laughs> to share it it's so good so it's really really fun to be hands like get my hands into all the different pieces like the production and the choosing the quality of like the materials and the printing mm-hmm. and like the and the working with the art director on the art layouts and like I just feel like it's given us a chance to really see what it takes to make a put a beautiful book together it's just made me even more excited. And when I find a really beautiful book, I'm like, oh yeah, now that I know how much work and how many people were involved in this process, it makes me love it all the more. <laughs> wow. That is so cool. Does Waxwing have a brick and mortar store or not yet? It doesn't have a brick and mortar store. We're at waxwingbooks.com and you can also find our books on that big online retailer. You all know I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. That's so cool. I, I have the, the, garden one. Oh, while everyone had. is sleeping or no, a little more beautiful. No. Yes. Yeah. That one. And that one's so sweet. It's, and it's so pretty. It's so I'm pretty. looking behind me to see if I have, I don't think I do have it handy. Our next book is called while everyone is sleeping. It just came out and it's got like these shimmering fireflies on the cover. That's so, that's so pretty. So that one just released. That's like a bedtime story. So that's a good one for, um, for bedtime or it's short, which is helpful at bedtime <laughs> uh, <laughs> and lyrical. And it's basically about a little shrew who is awakened by the moon and sneaks out and then gets a little scared by the nighttime, but then finds a delightful cr- bunch of critters dancing in the garden by the moon flowers, which only bloom at night, which are a real kind of flower. So it's, that one I did write, that was really fun to write. <laughs> so Aww. I love it. Oh, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Yes. And, um, I hope everybody feels inspired and to be able to just go do things that are beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Corey and Christine. I loved being here. Yeah. Thank you. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to modern ancestral mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at nourish the littles and online at nourish the littles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at fornutrientsake and online at fornutrientsake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas.
opinions expressed in this episode are those of the guests. They do not reflect Corey and I's and Modern Ancestral Mama's personal views and opinions. We do not take responsibility for any ideas expressed during the podcast interview. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.